I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hi, Kieran. How We're getting are better you? at this. We are. Uh, I'm hot and sweaty. I just got home from running errands and I'm teaching my brother how to drive and he's oh. doing really well, but you know, it was hot and sweaty and lots of hours. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I went on a bike ride yesterday around Berlin for the first time. I rode to Tempelhof and one of the other really cool parks and I got to ride down the Runway, that's what it's called. Ooh. I, rode, I rode an e-bike down the runway, which was great. But I learned yesterday that Lyft uh, or Lime, uh, there's like slow zones where you can uh-huh. only go 10 kilometers an hour. And apparently <laughs> that is the case on the fucking runway in Tempelhof. So I'm like putting more effort like biking on <laughs> the Tempelhof runway than I had the entire like however many miles it was ride to get to Tempelhof because they were like okay but we're gonna see our speed. calves at the end of the summer right oh yeah yeah no okay, uh, yeah. today I woke up in my entire like like my sit bones hurt and my abs hurt and I'm like I haven't <laughs> biked since before COVID so my whole body is wow. like what the fuck did you just do oh it's so nice that you have that though yeah it was nice I got to bike with a friend it was my therapist has been like have you done anything fun and i'm like no i've been in home hunting hell and she's what like is you fun? Do something i don't know fun. It's saying like, what you speak <laughs> exactly she's like but it sounds like you're unbalanced and like that does that's not good for you i'm like i know <laughs> so. <laughs> okay well speaking of balanced um or getting balanced we have a guest here today who is going to uh, correct some history myths, which I'm super excited about. So excited. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Ari Fulton, uh, and I'm a historian of abortion. Um, and I know Karen and Eve through uh, CRHE, the what is it? Coalition, Coalition. for <laughs> Responsible <laughs> Education. Um, I am a homeschool alum. I was homeschooled uh, K through 12, and I, after uh, college, I started a graduate degree in American history, and when I started was just sort of like, ah, I want to learn more about history. I want to learn more about, you know, I, I was doing work on like science fiction publishing, but in my second semester, I was taking a medical history course, and ran into a bunch of documents in the archive about uh, abortion in the 1840s. And it really stood out to me because I was like, oh, abortion, that's a really important topic. (laughs) And it's a kind of scary topic. And I like scary things. And when I say kind of a scary topic, I mean, I was raised in a kind of conservative evangelical homeschool community. My family was actually comparatively liberal for the community by which i mean like 
you know, my parents were not biblical literalists. I mean, uh, you were allowed to wear pants? We were allowed to wear pants. We were even, <laughs> we were allowed to learn about evolution. Whoa. All right. So like scandal. In a lot of ways, I was exposed to sort of ideas that a lot of homeschool kids are not. But abortion was one thing where, you know, my family really aligned with that sort of mainline conservative evangelical position of abortion is murder, abortion is wrong. And by the time I was in grad school, I'd started to kind of move away and question that. But studying the history of abortion was really kind of the first thing where I was able to see the way that learning history could help me to really actually rethink the world that we live in today. Mm. And so I now study the history of abortion in the 19th century. Um, I'm working on a book about uh, an abortionist who was one of the first women to go to medical school in the U.S., she was involved in a lot of other things over the course of her life, but it's really the story of how abortion uh, and murder became kind of linked in the American imagination. Uh, so that's that's me. Beyond the fact that this woman committed murder, or I mean, I, I like you, you, you <laughs> spelled something for us earlier, and I'm dying to know how. To- yes. So let me give you the sort of the, the short version of the life of. Josephine McCarty, who was really my entry point to the history of abortion in the U.S. I discovered Josephine McCarty uh, because I found a newspaper clipping from 1872 that told this really weird story. The story is this. On January 17th, 1872, a woman gets on a streetcar in Utica, New York. She shoots a guy in the face the bullet goes through his face, kills somebody else. Now she's, she's in trouble. Now she's on trial for a murder that she actually didn't try to commit, but she was trying to do a different one. So Two for one. She's in a complicated she's position. Go pack. It's fine. It's, it's cool. Right. Uh, Murders are us. Exactly. <laughs> And all of the papers are making a big deal of the fact that, you know, oh, this murderess, turns out she's also an abortionist. And at that point, there was was a distinction in the public imagination, I'm assuming. There was a distinction. Uh, The idea of kind of abortion as murder was not a mainstream idea at all in the way that it is today, right? That's something that, you know, we talk about abortion today and we kind of know that that's what's on the table for the debate, you know, do you believe it's a murder or not? In the 1860s, the 1870s, that's an idea that's being pushed by really quite a small group of people. And they're not necessarily the people that you would expect them to be, right? Today, 2022, the people who are kind of pushing that narrative, right, pro-life activists who sort of equate abortion and murder, We think of them broadly within a religious context, right? Mm -hmm. That's certainly how I grew up Mm -hmm. with it as this idea of kind of a religious duty to oppose abortion. In the 1800s, it's doctors who are pushing this idea. What? Wait, wait, as opposed to midwives. Yeah. Yes. Doctors as opposed to midwives, which is a Mm -hmm. part of the story. That's my first flag there. (laughs) So, okay, there's a lot of parts to this story. 
of how we get this position where in the 1850s and the 1860s, you have an actual campaign by members of the American Medical Association to get state legislatures to pass anti-abortion statutes. Wait, hold on, because I thought, I thought abortion was only legal when Roe happened, but are you saying that there was a time before Roe in which there was not like anti-abortion laws on the books? Wait, so as far as I understand it, Kieran, it's kind of like homeschooling where it was legal until they codified it as illegal Mm -hmm. or regulated somehow. Mm -hmm. So as long as they didn't talk about it, it was fine. You're pretty much exactly right there. Um, So if we go back to really the beginning of the 1800s, right? The United States, New Republic. At that point, the U.S. followed kind of the English common law, which basically said that, well, to be honest, it really didn't say a lot, right? It didn't have um, a lot to do with regulating abortion. But at that point, it was all about like private property and that's right. about it. <laughs> that's about it. But under common law, the sort of like big theme about abortion is quickening, right? This is this idea that uh, before quickening, which is the moment when the pregnant person can like feel something inside that's moving, right? Okay, I know that I'm pregnant now because I can I can feel it in my body. Prior to that, there's there's absolutely no regulation. It's not just that like you feel it in your body; it's a like you feel the baby moving independently of you. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Right. There's a lot that you feel before that stage. Right. You may have an idea that you're pregnant, but right. It's that moment when you feel it moving. There's something inside that is, you know, a pregnancy. Prior to that point, there's, there's, there's no pregnancy. So in the early 1800s, right, abortion is effectively legal. And the first law in U.S. history to restrict or criminalize abortion in any way is a statute passed in 1821 in Connecticut that the sort of big abortion historian James Moore describes it as essentially an anti-poisoning law. But what it says is specifically if you administer any of this, you know, like long list of different types of poisons or substances to a pregnant person then, you know, that is a crime. That's a misdemeanor. But but doesn't it say in the Bible that you're allowed to do that? <laughs> Tell you what. There's, there's, a, there's a recipe for abortion in, in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is, this is you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. ancient knowledge. Ancient mm-hmm. knowledge. I'm just, I'm just having fun with this. <laughs> if anyone really needs to look it up it's like what in leviticus or deuteronomy or something or it's basically if she's cheated on him give her this thing and if she bleeds then whoops she's a whore oops <laughs> oops you know how yeah, i mean it's, it's it's it is like clearly a recipe for abortion and to <laughs> you know we've talked about this before but just like to go back and clarify like again jewish tradition it's not alive until it's taken its first breath. And that's Mm -hmm. the quickening that they interpret that in under. And so Mm -hmm. like it's two different interpretations of what quickening is. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And these are conversations that, I mean, you go back as far as there are written records and you're going to see, right, these different interpretations, as you say, of quickening and you're going to see those recipes for abortion, right? This is, this is knowledge that people have. Uh, but it's the 1820s and the 1830s when state legislatures in the U.S. start to pass laws that create a little bit of regulation. But they're not really being conceived, if I can use that word, as anti-abortion statutes. Uh, The concern is much more with controlling medical practice, which is something that is a pretty legitimate thing to try to do, right, in the 1820s. And to control the midwives. And there's no, like, actual legitimization of who is a doctor who is not pretty much before this point. No. So before this point, if you look at the 18th century and you look at who's who are the doctors in the 18th century, it's the mayor who also like gives people medicine in his spare time. It's it tends to be kind of upper class men. It's it's upper class men who are your local opiate dealer, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> right. It's like all there is to it. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We give you heroin and then you're fine. Everything totally. is fine after that. It's cool. Well, that's one side of medical care. And then the other side is sort of less official, like doctors, but you have your midwives, right? You have Martha Ballard, right? Famously, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich writes this whole book about, you know, kind of the daily experience of a midwife in, you know, the late 1700s. And it's clear that, you know, these are really important medical practitioners. But in terms of who you think of as a doctor with a capital D, right, it's those rich men. Something happens in the 1830s or so. And basically what it is, is a sort of culture-wide move towards democratization. And this applies to the professions as well, where people are suddenly saying, okay, wait a minute, like, there's no reason that I should have to go to my, you know, mayor who calls himself a doctor, but like, has no particular training, and he gives me this medicine that makes me extraordinarily ill. What if there's a better way? <laughs> it's also it's also like part of the industrial revolution and the like movement West is causing some like class consciousness in terms of like you're able to, you mm-hmm. know, change classes if you are able mm-hmm. to get yourself wealthy enough. And like there's a whole lot mm-hmm. of, you know, nonsense going around about new money and and judging that. But like that's there's this reality of like, People are getting rich fast and Mm -hmm. they're able to transition from lower class to or working class to upper class. And and so there's, you know, they're wanting to gatekeep that is a big concern. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So one of the sort of big movements at this time is for kind of folk medicine. There's a bunch of different kind of sects of medicine that don't require a kind of medical degree. So you have Thomsonians who say, oh, you know, anybody can be their own physician. You just buy this book by Samuel Thompson. Oh, God. And it'll tell you. What ails you? Well, to be, to be honest, Samuel Thompson's system is mainly like it's a lot of emetics it's a lot of cayenne pepper enemas it's a lot of steam baths you know it's the fun stuff right but you can do it at home 
And <laughs> ultimately, it's probably going to make you feel better in the end after all of that's over than if you're taking mercury-based medicine. Yeah, I would rather do a cayenne enema than anything mercury-based, personally. I, I, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't lose your your cognitive functioning. Yeah, you, you shit yourself a lot, but like you it burns yeah. for a little bit, but so, then it's okay. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with shitting yourself for a minute. No. Uh, everyone yeah. says at the beginning and end of their life, what's a little extra? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, so all of this kind of comes to a head and becomes a very urgent problem in about 1832. And here's why. In 1832, cholera hits the U.S. Oh. And cholera is awful. Speaking of <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's confusing. Nobody knows in the 1830s what is causing cholera. Nobody knows how to fix it. And this is true across all of these different medical sects, but the kind of regular physicians, the ones who you know have gone to an official medical college, they have no idea what to do about cholera. It's killing people, you know, by the hundreds. And this is a moment when a lot of people start really losing faith in the American medical establishment. And in response, You've got a whole generation of doctors who say, okay, we need to restore authority to ourselves. We need to restore people's faith in us. And abortion becomes a tool that they use to do that. Oh, mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Right. So you'll often see kind of... Uh, a narrative that, you know, doctors are trying to criminalize abortion so that they can crack down on female partic- practitioners like midwives. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of the story. But I think that's a part of the story that's kind of filtered through a 21st century perspective mm-hmm. where, right, abortion's a feminist issue. It's not really a feminist issue in the mid-1800s. But it is this issue of medical authority. Who do we trust? Who gets to make decisions about people's health, about medicine? And you have doctors in the 1850s and the 1860s saying it needs to be us. It needs to be medical men with the training that we have decided Mm -hmm. is the right training. Right. Hmm. Hmm. So there's a lot of people behind this. But one of the biggest proponents of this campaign against abortion is a guy named Horatio Robinson Storer. He's from Boston. That's a good name. It's a great name. He's not a great guy, <laughs> as you can imagine. He can have one nice thing. He gets, he gets one nice thing, and it's his name. Okay. Here's the thing that you need to know about Horatio Robinson Storer. He's... From Boston. That's not the one thing. That's, I mean, that tells us everything you need to know, right? Oh, wait. I have already. Okay. <laughs> you know everything you need to know yeah. about him. Here's what you need to know about him. His father is the dean of Harvard Medical School. Oh. And in 1855, Horatio's father is at you know a, a meeting 
of medical leaders. And he says, somebody needs to do something about all the criminal abortion out there. Some strong medical man needs to step up and, you know, speak on behalf of the profession about this evil that is happening. Criminal as opposed to non-criminal being what? So this is a great question. Criminal abortion by 1855 has a meaning. There are some states by 1855 that have made abortion both before and after quickening a crime. So one of them is New York State. New York State makes abortion at any stage of pregnancy a misdemeanor starting in 1829, actually. So it's a fender bender. Oops. Mm-hmm. Knock yeah. something out yeah. of my body. No big, but like, <laughs> yeah. slap you on the wrist. That's fine. Pay a fine. Well, the people who have to pay a fine under that law are the doctors, the practitioners, mm-hmm. right? So this is a move. This is part of this general move to like crack down on irregular practitioners. Mm. You know, if, if, if you're, you know, a, an upstanding doctor, you can still perform an abortion. The 1829 law is actually kind of the first law in U.S. history to introduce this idea that is really important right now of a therapeutic exception, Hmm. which says that, all right, abortion at any stage of pregnancy is illegal, but if you can get two doctors to say it's medically necessary, then Hmm. you're fine. Right. So the question of who is a doctor, who gets to say, that's baked into this law. Right. Okay. And you have to get two of them to agree with each other, which sounds like a lot of work. It really is a lot of work, but it's it's ultimately, this is not a law that is sort of imagined as something for patients to be using, right? You can imagine, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, this is not, mm-hmm. oh, we're providing a way for you to get an abortion mm-hmm. if you need it. This is, oh, sure, if you're an upstanding regular physician and part of your practice up to now has been providing abortions, which it has been, right? This is, this is not a yeah. niche medical field. Uh, this law says you can keep doing that as long as you have kind of that authority, as long as that you have opinion. agreement. Yeah. That second mm-hmm. opinion, right? So, you know, if your old classmate from Harvard Medical School says, yep, you're fine, you're a good doctor, you can do this, you're set, right? And I mean, keep in mind also, these are laws that are for the most part not really being enforced. Mm -hmm. It's not until the mid 20th century that we're gonna see an actual practical crackdown on abortion practitioners. But the idea is planted in the law as early as 1829. And then there's another really important idea that gets introduced to US law in 1845. And that is the idea of criminalizing, not just performing an abortion, but getting one. Mm. So instead of the practitioner, it's the recipient. Right. So prior to 1845, right, it's, it's only doctors who are, you know, liable under mm. these state laws. 1845, the New York Criminal Code says that now a woman or any kind of patient can be arrested for getting an abortion. Mm-hmm. And so that's what these doctors are talking about when they're, you know, talking about criminal abortion, right? This is this kind of new idea that's being introduced into the law and into the public consciousness that this is a medical decision 
that is illegal now. Right? It's not illegal across the board. Not every state has a law. And that's why Horatio Robinson Storer and his dad are now concerned, right? Mm. There need to be more lawmakers who are on this. There need to be more we state We need some lawmakers. leadership here. And who should be the leadership? A white dude. Absolutely. Clearly. Who else, really? Nothing else has worked so far. Must must go to that one. We haven't tried anything else, but we know this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, here's, here's what happens, all right? So Horatio's dad gives this speech, 1855. He says, we need a man to step up and do something about it. <laughs> Horatio says, well, well, I will be that man. Please be proud of me, Daddy. Exactly. I want to uh, get the kiss from Daddy. Mm-hmm. In 1857, he sort of formally starts this campaign. He like gets together a committee of other doctors and he says, we're all going to write letters to our legislators and we're going we're gonna to get these laws passed. And in 1859, across the course of the year, he publishes a series of articles on, quote, criminal abortion in <laughs> one of the leading medical journals. Okay. And it is... It is some intense stuff. So <laughs> he has a lot to say. He has a lot to does. say about abortion. Let me actually let me pull up some of my notes. Good, 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 <laughs> I <period>. guess. <laughs> One of the very, very first things that he says about criminal abortion in this series, he says, by the common law and by many of our state codes, Fetal life, per se, is almost wholly ignored and its destruction unpunished. Per se. Abortion, per se. Abortion is, in every case, being considered an offense mainly against the mother and as such, unless fatal to her, a mere misdemeanor or wholly regarded. So, breaking down the 1800s. A misdemeanor if she dies. Yeah, basically he's saying, okay, wait a minute. None of our laws are concerned with the fetus. Some of them are worried about the mother, but I, Horatio, am not really worried about her. I'm worried about the fetus and nobody else is. Obviously. Yeah. That's the problem here. And this is, to be clear, kind of a new idea, right? So again, pausing, backing up a little bit, People have been talking about this really big question of, like, when does life begin? Forever, right? Aristotle talks about it, right? This is an old question. But in the mid-1800s, medical science has kind of some new information about how it happens. So in 1827, you get the sort of discovery of the mammalian egg, right? We now have a new perspective on what exactly is happening in between we had sex and we have a baby, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so here is kind of the core of what Horatio Storer has to say about this big question of like when life begins. For him, the really important moment is when the egg enters the fallopian tube. He says at that point, it is no longer part of the mother's body. <laughs> and so it then can't become part of it again. My fallopian uh, tubes would beg to differ. Me and my non-existent ovaries have many questions. 
Right. So, like, that's, that's a little bit deranged, but I think it's actually really important to kind of look at this moment where, you know, between these sort of new theories of embryology, mm-hmm. the development of stethoscopes. This makes sense. This is like, as far as you know, mm-hmm. this, right. is, this is right. Like, I, I get it. I'll, I'll give him a little bit there, but woo you. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So it, it's it's complicated. I'm, still, I'm like, still stuck at the fallopian tubes are inside of the body, though. So there's no... You know what? I don't have an answer for him on why that would ever make sense. <laughs> the fallopian tube is lava. As long as it's not touching it, it's fine. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. That's that's the first time it lets go. It can never become part of you again. <laughs> Independent yeah. child right there. You might as well just go to driver's license and social security number and it's on bank account like immediately. Like Right. As soon as you're in the fallopian tube, you're ready to go. Yeah, yeah. You're basically an adult at that point. You can you can sign up for war. It's fine. <laughs> oh. right. But I mean, putting this in the context of right. To, to get grim, like 2022, you have these same ideas about, you know, it doesn't matter uh, whether a pregnancy is, you know, uh, viable. It doesn't matter what kind of pregnancy this is. As soon as this thing has happened medically that we can kind of point to, then, you know, that's the whole ball game. Yeah. After that point, you're pregnant with a capital P and you must carry that child. But the other thing that gets me about like both Horatio and also this current moment is like nobody knows. No one knows the second mm-hmm. the egg enters the fallopian tubes. No one knows the second the sperm like fertilizes the egg. Like there's my ovulation process would beg to differ, but yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> mine too, but <laughs> that's not usual. And <laughs> no, there was no way of like charting. Like I, like I didn't go to the doctor the day I ovulated and was like, "Can you please confirm this is the ovulation date?" Yeah, right. Well, and I think that's actually kind of part of what gets lost, right, in in all of this conversation and what you know is happening in this moment in the 1850s is this sort of artificial certainty mm-hmm. that I think doctors are kind of creating in response to new information that they have that, you know, uh, to to put on my sort of sympathetic perspective, like you have this new information, it seems to fit into this new way of thinking about life that feels important, but it loses sight so quickly of as exactly as you say, like the, Nobody really knows right. anything, actually. But Horatio, he knows. He's confident. <laughs> he does. And he says... Do you know how many Wikipedia articles this man has edited? He knows. He knows. He's certain. Exactly. Right. He is on it. He's got... So he's, throughout this year, he's writing all of these different articles about this issue and explaining, you know, here's everything that I know and here's why I can prove that abortion is murder. And he really does use that language pretty explicitly. 
as an argument for not just why physicians should be concerned about abortion generally, but why specifically uh, physicians should be concerned with passing anti-abortion laws to protect fetal life. Mm. And he's very clear on who should be doing this and why. He says very specifically, medical men in all obstetric matters are the physical guardians of women and their offspring. And this is, he says, a proposition that none can deny. I have questions. Save my babies, Horatio Daddy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So you can see... (laughs) There's a lot going on here. Uh, well, I, I, I like. I just wanted to do a tiny footnote here. Like, I feel like some of this, like, absolute certainty that none can deny that kind of language. Like, it goes back to inerrancy of scripture yep. mindset. Mm-hmm. So you're you're taught that certain things have to be true. Certain things are absolutes. Mm-hmm. You can know these things, and so like this, like this is the end of knowledge on this subject. Mm-hmm case closed is is part and parcel with that like generals like tradition of like how you approach knowledge and learning and the world around you mm-hmm. yeah i think that's i think that's really important that from this sort of very early stage of a kind of anti-abortion politics in the u.s in a completely different context, one that is not explicitly religious, there is this emphasis on that moral certainty. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that is kind of essential to an anti-abortion standpoint, because as soon as you introduce that uncertainty and that space for, yeah, not every pregnancy is the same. Not every person's experience of pregnancy is the same. Well, then it's becomes a lot harder to sustain and entertain an Mm -hmm. Mm anti-abortion. But moral certainty is great when people pay you for it, (laughs) which is why all of these doctors say like, yes, we actually do want this because if there's a law that says we are the moral authorities and the medical authorities, then we get those patients, we get that business And so another big part of what's going on at the same time as all of this is a growing concern with a lot of different kind of words that we could use here, but a growing concern with the number of immigrants that are in the country. Mm -hmm. There's a growing concern with the fact that, uh, and Horatio is very upset about this, by the way, (laughs) the fact that it seems like Protestant women are having more abortions. That's a big problem for him. Mm. Well, it is. I mean, also, this is a this is a baby race with the mm-hmm. Irish because this is the middle of the Great Hunger, isn't it? Or just after. exactly right. We're we're just after the Great Hunger. So, I mean, in the 1850s, the 1860s, the 1870s, you see this really big rise in immigration, and particularly towards the end of the 19th century, you're starting to see more immigrants entering the country who are not considered sort of middle-class white Protestant, Mm -hmm. right? And so here is what happens in the 1870s, because that's when we start to really see 
the end of this anti-abortion campaign. And I say the end because by the 1880s, every state in the country will have laws against Hmm. abortion. So what's happening in this last stage? What's happening is that the press is starting to get involved now. Up to this point, it's been, you know, it was talked about from time to time, but it's really something that is a concern within the medical and legal professions much more than it is anything that the press is interested in or anything that the kind of average person is all that aware of or invested in. And I think that's something that's actually important to remember, right? Throughout all of this discourse, people are getting abortions. People mm-hmm. are, you know, mm-hmm. terminating pregnancies all the time. And it's it's very much still part of kind of normal life. That's going to start to shift a little bit in the 1870s. And it happens in part because there's history sometimes has these great little sets of coincidences. <laughs> and here's the one that happens in 1871. In 1871, the New York Times decides we're going to do a series on criminal abortionists. We're going to get a journalist. He's going to go undercover to all of these different offices around the city. He's going to bring, you know, a lady friend with him and say, oh, you know, we need we need an abortion. What does this remind you of, Kieran? Oh, God. Uh... <laughs> this reminds me of Salvation Army and White Slavery. Yeah. Well, and the other thing it reminds me of is like how all of the, well, maybe not all of them, but like there was this thing that happened with a bunch of like pro-life forced birth organizations. Oh, yeah, like, and, like, the, and all of them. Yeah. yeah, where they would like go to Planned Parenthood and be like, I need an abortion. And they'd film it and be like, mm-hmm. and then like edit it and be like, oh, look, they were like, you have to have an abortion or else. And it's like, Mm-hmm. They they made it be what they wanted it to be, but it, it was the whole thing. This kind of gonzo journalism sucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it's it's the New York Times that's of doing it. Of course, of course, of course. right? We love the Times. Well, <laughs> um, you think the Times has better standards then? <laughs> We should not be surprised by the times at this point. That's a whole other conversation, though. Okay. (laughs) So they've got their journalist. He's making all his visits. It's important to note all of these doctors he's visiting, I think all, maybe don't quote me on that, but (laughs) certainly the vast majority, they're immigrant doctors, right? Mm. A lot of them are Eastern European Jewish immigrants. Mm. So just to be clear about who we're exposing here. I see. I see. Who is the face of criminal abortion? It is the immigrant doctor. Well, about a week before this expose is set to be published, uh, a porter at a railroad station in the city sees a trunk that is sitting on the platform it's kind of been abandoned it doesn't look great it doesn't smell great Mm. they open the trunk there is a dead body inside investigation ensues and it's discovered that this is the body of a young woman named alice bowlesby from new jersey and she died as the result of an abortion Mm -hmm. performed by one of the doctors that the new york times reporter visited not a great situation right they have now their perfect victim 
a lovely white Protestant girl from New Jersey. Oh, she, she was, was she was engaged. Exactly. You know, yeah. she had a fiance. It was just a, you know, a terrible mishap. Tragic, tragic death at the hands of this guy who I'll tell you, the, the papers really go back and forth on whether he was German or Hungarian or Russian. <laughs> the point is, what you really need to know, he's foreign and he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. This is 1871. New York State at this point has one of the most strict anti-abortion statutes. Abortion at any stage of pregnancy is considered second degree manslaughter. You can be sent to prison for multiple years. So no longer a misdemeanor. No longer a misdemeanor, right? This is now a felony. And our doctor goes on trial. He is, of course, convicted. He is sent to prison. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another case of an abortion gone wrong in New York in 1871. And it's actually a case of my woman, Josephine McCarty. I'm so glad we came back to her. Yes. <laughs> We're coming back to her. Here's what happens. In August of 1871, this is, you know, the tr- great trunk mystery is still going on down in New York City. It's huge news. The name of the episode is The Great Trunk Mystery. I'm mm-hmm. writing it down. <laughs> but the, the kind of junk in it is not the one you want. No. No, no definitely not the right junk in the trunk here. While all this is taking place in New York City, Josephine McCarty is visited in Albany by a young woman named Maggie Campbell. Maggie Campbell is an Irish immigrant. She's been working in the city for a few years, you know, jumping back and forth between hotels. She's been seeing this guy called Peter Mockery, and he has declined to marry her. But she is now pregnant. Did Peter Mockery make a mockery of her honor? Sorry. He did. He did. (laughs) Well, Maggie shows up. She stays at Josephine's house for a while. And then she dies. She's buried very quickly in the middle of the night by a couple of doctors that Josephine knows. And then the sheriff gets interested. And he gets a couple of other doctors to exhume the body and perform an autopsy. And there's an inquest held in Albany in September of 1871. Josephine appears at the inquest along with the doctor who originally buried Maggie and the doctors who dug her up. Here's what they all have to say. The doctor who originally buried her says, oh, yes, you know, I was, I was there. She was, she was very ill. She died of peritonitis. She died of this <laughs> infection. It's not a problem. Coroner says, oh, all right, doctor. Um, that, that all sounds good. Um, her uterus is missing? Do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> yeah, she just left it out when she left with her keys and she forgot it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Happens he to just the best of them sometimes. I swear to God. He says, no, I just do that. I just do that all the time. Yeah. And they're like, well, okay, so you so you removed it. That's your standard practice. And he says, yes. Yes, I make purses out of it. Don't worry about it. And they said, well, do you know, do you know where it is now? And he said, I've just, I've misplaced it. I I stuff it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just a hobby. (laughs) He has a lot to answer for, but all right, moving on. Now the doctor who performed the uh, autopsy 
steps up and he says, okay, so first of all, the fact that, you know, the uterus is missing, that's a problem for me. (laughs) Also, you know, everything that's left in that area is kind of inflamed. That's a little bit suspicious. Come on. Exactly. Right. She had a lot of diarrhea. It happens. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's another problem. Her breasts are enlarged and full of milk. So that's... It's a kink. It's a little bit of an issue. Sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, here's what happens. (laughs) Josephine at this point gets up and she she cross-examines this doctor. And she basically just spends quite a while, you know, going back and forth and, you know, are you really absolutely sure? Can you say with 100% certainty that this means that she was pregnant. Is there any other reason that you could, you know, see these things? And for whatever reason, he's like, well, no, there could be something else going on. It is technically possible that she wasn't pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, she didn't have a uterus, so how could she be pregnant, really? You're asking the right question. (laughs) You can't be pregnant if you don't have a uterus. It's fine. You're not making those kinds of hormones. In the end, she talks them back from this point of certainty where they're like, yes, I know that this is what happened. Oh, my God. Yes. She's she's never charged with anything. Incredible. And on the one hand, all right, as a historian, I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm torn between two things. On the one hand, I'm very pumped for her. I find this great and exciting. On the other hand... Maggie Campbell was a working class Irish immigrant, and the doctor who treated her is a white middle class Protestant woman. She doesn't get in any trouble. She's able to defend herself at this inquest while down in New York City. We have right, right, right. Jewish immigrant doctors, mm. they're being criminalized. Right, right. Yeah. So. This is the thing that I think is important to understand about the early history of abortion in the United States. There is so much going on in the story of how we got to a point where the idea that abortion is murder is accepted by so Mm -hmm. many people. It's really hard to boil it down to one thing, Mm -hmm. right? We have a pushback against women women's autonomy generally, but in particular, women practicing medicine. We have this concern that there are too many immigrant babies, too many immigrant doctors, not enough white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. We have this concern with, you know, do doctors know anything? Can we trust them? Which doctors should we trust? There's a lot happening. And I think it's really easy When we think about a topic that is as charged as abortion is, and as kind of personally important as it is to truly just about every person, it can be really easy to kind of oversimplify the topic Mm -hmm. and to kind of assume almost bad faith on both sides. Right. Right. And I think that loses loses track and loses the sort of complexity of the issue where it's all of these things. It's, you know, a racist campaign. It's an 
anti-woman campaign that these doctors are running in the 1850s, the 1860s. But it's not just about that. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily their priority. Their priority might be more wanting to make money, wanting to kind of shore up their job, uh, wanting their father to be proud of them, right? All of this mm -hmm. is actually a part <laughs> of the history of abortion. And there is there is something to be said for like the standardization of medical practice that was happening at this mm -hmm. time is something that we benefit from today. And this was part of that process. Like, yeah, you can't really separate it. Right. I think it's really easy to kind of want to believe the sort of simpler version yeah. where it's just like there was a there was a campaign of evil people and that's why we are where we are today. The end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nuance did not exist. It was very clear cut. It's everything is always easy <sighs> to slice up. We know this. <laughs> yeah. But I think the other thing that's just that astonished me when I first started learning about it and that I think is so important to keep in mind, again, in the present moment, this was not always a religious issue. Right. You know, the the doctors are way ahead of the church. Yes. Yeah. The AMA starts its campaign against abortion in 1857. The Catholic Church doesn't make abortion an excommunicable offense until 1869. Mm-hmm. And even after that point, churches aren't really getting involved. For no, they're really not until Roe until after Roe v. Wade. Usually, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like the thing that I think is interesting that is missed from the conversation is what I brought up earlier, where everyone thinks that like you know after Roe is when it became legal. There was no point in which it happened before Roe, except for, you know, back alley coat mm -hmm. hanger stuff, which we all know is bullshit. <laughs> also that like the entire narrative that we've had having not existed before Roe is that it's all a religious thing. And so what's really interesting is that like, no, back in like the mid 1800s, this was just some white doctors being fragile <laughs> much. It's in, uh, yeah, it, and it's this is as far as science had progressed, and this was yes. the most that we, we knew at that time. And hello, we are far, far, far past that. Let's incorporate our new knowledge into things, right? <laughs> but right. yeah, you just like we can't. It's easy to to look at it and think that like they were stuck in the past on purpose when it was actually cutting edge. I think that was the future at that point. Well, and like something that really was eye-opening for me with COVID was being at this scientific medical precipice of like, we don't know what the fuck is happening. Like, yeah. what is this? And I was like, oh, now I understand what it was like, like all of the times before <laughs> when people were like, I don't know why people are dying of sepsis. And some dude was like, what if we washed our hands? And everyone was like, that seems weird. <laughs> and then and then everyone started washing their hands. They were like, oh, hey, no one's dying of sepsis anymore. Hmm. Like, weird. that still happens today. And as it turns out, that happened all throughout history. So at some point, and that's something that like I cognizantly remind myself of sometimes when I'm reading history, is like, we just didn't fucking know that 
shit worked the way that it does because the science hadn't been invented. And like what we do know, we always have to put a pin in it and assume like this is going to get revised later. Like we Mm -hmm. think we know this, but like, you know, we thought for a long time it was for humors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what <laughs> like my favorite piece of science trivia growing up was about like the people who figured out how digestion worked because some dude in like the middle of the Civil War like had a gunshot wound that didn't heal and they just like put glass over it and watched how his stomach did shit. And I was oh, like, I oh, my that's God, funny. that's the coolest thing. <laughs> People just learned how stuff worked because they were like, oh, your wound didn't heal, but we can see your organs. Can we watch you for science? <laughs> and that's how we learned about the digestive system. So much of knowledge is just somebody fucking around and finding out. <laughs> it, really, it really is. Usually a couple of people die along the way, and that's fine. That's what? apparently that's part fine. of fucking around and finding out is, you know experiments go wrong minor casualties minor casualties <laughs> oh my god wow okay this is really fun yeah, yeah this has been very enlightening actually thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge about abortion in the 1800s because that is something that is just like i haven't seen anyone talking about it besides like oh no there was abortion before row maybe mm-hmm. so this has been great. So your new fans, where can they find you and pre-order your book? <gasps> so the book, it's, it is still in progress, but there will be news about it coming up. Um, I am on Twitter at R-E-B Fulton. And they can also find me and find a lot more information for anybody who's interested in kind of the history of medicine, in particular uh, topics having to do with medicine and gender, a website called Nursing Clio, C-L-I-O. Mm. It's a peer-reviewed history collective that I've been on the editorial team for for quite a while. And we publish essays on kind of history of science, medicine, and gender that are for people who do not need to have a PhD, who do not, uh, you know, have lots of free time to read books on things. I say as someone who does not read many books these days. <laughs> um, it's a really great resource for, yeah, if you're looking for some kind of approachable, digestible history by some of the kind of top scholars today, that's where you're going to find this history. Amazing. So, that is so cool. That's exactly what I need because I don't have the time or the knowledge to read through. Like the Lancet is just so far above my ability to like understand. I'm just like, cool. Let me know when like the LA Times has a TLDR on this because I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. I need to really Google helpful. every other word. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having me. This was a joy. This was so fun. I, I did not expect learning about abortion in the 1800s to be so entertaining we knew it was going to be exciting but not like this yeah. <laughs> not not this way. the great it trunk is a mystery i really going back to the trunk i really want to know like how who thought one putting a body on a trunk and two shipping it to wherever and then just leaving it in the middle of like the train station 
it wasn't a great plan. <laughs> like, um, you could just ship children anywhere in the country like that. So, like, right. why not a dead body? I don't know. <laughs> you can kind of ship whatever you want to. As long um, as I, I think. <laughs> I think there might have been some mix-up with scheduling, but I, I have no answers for you, honestly. Just like I have so many questions about just that trunk, like how, why, like at least, at least our heroine like had the good sense to bury the body. Right. Oh, instantly. <laughs> That's the thing that makes sense: is you the bury mouth. the body, you don't mm-hmm. ship the body. Yeah. <laughs> I can't actually give you one small amount of insight on why the trunk versus just burying. This took place in Manhattan. In Manhattan, it has been illegal to bury anyone <sighs> since the 1840s. Okay. Huh. Because there's no space, right? Yeah. That's why there are so many cemeteries in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you couldn't bury them. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you can't stack these. That's, that would be terrible. No, it's a lot for Sunday no. afternoon. <laughs> One crime at a time. Exactly. <laughs> you gotta limit yourself. You gotta pace yourself. I feel oh like that's God. a good note to end on. One crime at a time. Thank I you agree. so much, Ari. Really, really fun to have you on. Thank you. It's been really fun. Amazing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find Ari on Twitter, and we will link all the things in the show notes. Make sure you bury your bodies instead of sending them in trunks. That's all the end. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Good message to end on. I feel like it's, it's useful and practical advice. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult Podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.